The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Creeps, cults, ghosts, guys named Jerry. This is your one-stop shop. If you like all that weird shit, join me. I'm Casey Balsham. I'm a comedian and I am fascinated by dark, twisty, and shady ass shit. On the Shady Shit Podcast, we're going to cover all the topics ranging from living in a haunted house to dating app scammers to Lizzie Borden and everything in between. Every Friday, I'm going to break down well-known and little-known stories that are sure to induce just a bit of discomfort. I am so looking forward to making your weeks just a little bit weirder. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. You have to create your to-be list before your to-do list. These are the words of my guest on this week's episode of Looking Up, Monica Berg. Inspiring, thoughtful, wise, fearless. This week's conversation is all about what we spend our energy on, facing our fears and how powerful mindset shifts can be. Monica has a way with words and she expertly walks us through the different types of stress, how we can't control our situations, but we can control our perceptions of them and how we stay fully present when things are good. All topics that really intersect with my research and work as an optimism doctor. Her insights on change, loss, growth, fear, and her riding shotgun analogy all make this episode one that you are not going to want to miss. We got pretty candid about being more fully present in moments of joy, the important lessons change can bring us throughout our life, and dove into what it actually means to face our fears head on. I was inspired, uplifted, challenged, and championed through this conversation, and I can't wait to hear what you learned from her. Enjoy this episode, and remember, things are looking up. Hi, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, and the way that we start the Looking Up podcast is with a little section that I like to call Looking In, and it's basically just a series of very short, rapid-fire style questions in which the audience and myself get to know you a little bit more intimately. So, Monica, has there been a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please share. Well, there's actually three. Um, I'd say the first is the Zohar. It's the main Kabbalistic text for the teaching and the wisdom of Kabbalah. So that kind of most definitely has um, impacted my life the most. The other two books I found at the same time when I was 17 are Many Lives, Many Masters and You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hayes. So those three, I think together, it's body, mind, and spirit <laughs> encompassed everything. Yes. A couple of those I have read and have changed my life as well. Okay. People think that I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. I'm not really sure because I make it a practice not to be too busy with what people think of me. Well, that makes sense. And something I think we are going to talk about, maybe answering that in a different way of what is something about yourself that uh, maybe not a lot of people know? Um, I think that unless you take the time to actually speak to me or get to know me, um, it's easy to look like, you know, I'm unassailable. Nothing bothers me at all. And in fact, I think that, I mean, the feedback that I often get is, wow, you know, you're so fun and thoughtful and um, nice. Like, it's just, 
Not that I come up with the opposite of that, but I just seem like, oh, you know, I got this whole thing figured out. And I mean, I'm very vocal about about that not being the case, that I'm forever wanting to grow and change. Um, but I would say that's the that's probably the most accurate. Um, okay. And how would you describe yourself as a teenager during your high school years in three words? Uh, wild, <laughs> worried, and mm. curious. Okay. And when is the last time that you cried? Um, pretty much all last month on and off. My father um, just passed. So last month was difficult. And then uh, Mother's Day, my children really went out of the way to let me know how they feel. And that moved me deeply. So yeah, it's been a month. (laughs) I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. Thank you. We shift gears a little bit. Three things that have brought you joy today. My children, my workout, and my work this moment. I love that. Okay. There are so many topics that you talk about that I'm so interested in. And I know that a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in. It's going to be hard to fit this all in one episode, but I really, that's why I'm going to just jump right in. Um, I really want to start with this idea of being unbusy and what you believe the secret to a life of greater purpose is and what that really means. Because I think there are plenty of us, many of us that would like to talk about. that very topic and would like to uncover what that secret really is about? Well, I think that often we are busy with the wrong things in life and that can lead you to living a life that is not really satisfactory, that it's easy to kind of get into that rut because in life, we kind of train ourselves to be very much connected and aware of what people think of us and what they expect from us, especially uh, girls at a very early age are expected to be all kinds of things um, with a smile on your face and very amenable. So I think that it has to be something that you actually pause and you question and you look at where you are in life and say, okay, where am I putting my time and energy? And is it aligned with what I believe? There are a few, I think, really easy tools and tips to kind of get a person there. One is called non-time, which sounds like a waste of time. But in fact, I think it's important to really give yourself space to do nothing at all. In fact, Albert Einstein, who obviously everybody knows, some of his greatest understandings came while he was bobbing along on his sailboat. And that's the idea of non-time, right? Putting yourself out there in a space, maybe in nature, or for me, it's extreme exercise, where you're not busy doing, thinking this and that, and you're able just to create. Uh, Steve Jobs was the same. He would, you know, he was known as a procrastinator. He would doodle a lot. And from those, you know, taking that time to kind of just be out there daydreaming, he was able to find a great balance between work and play. So I think that that's something that everybody should kind of pause and take a look at. The other thing I think that's really powerful that will help us to stop spending time on the wrong things is to create your to-be list before your to-do list. Most people have very long to-do lists. And if you really look at the to-do list, does the laundry really have to get done every you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, do you have to do the dishes at this time? I mean, we make a lot of rules for ourselves for different reasons. Maybe we pride ourselves on looking like somebody who has it all under control and that we're really organized in need. And, but is that really making you happy? So when you create a to-be list first, right, you decide who you want to be. If it's, for instance, to be a a really present parent, let's say, then on your to-do list would be, you know, from this time to this time every day, put the phone away and really connect with my child. So I think that's a really great way to make sure also that you are busy with the right things. 
I think that's such an interesting point. You know, it is kind of reminding me of a workshop that I lead often, which is really about finding your true purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think we live in a world, I always talk about this, that we live in this world where like we're constantly making decisions and have a million choices. And it sort of puts us in this idea of like decision fatigue or like choice paralysis. And I think that like sometimes it's really just about, and, and in order to do this, it's interesting because it kind of brings back the other tool you talked about, but you need the non-time, or I call it the time to go within to actually figure out like who you are and what your purpose is. And I guess, yeah, what do you want to be? And and when you really sit and think and have the time to do that, like sometimes you can look at your life and it can be completely the opposite. And that is a reason for the struggle and the mental struggle through it. Sometimes it can look very similar. Um, but I also want to put out there that like, you know, I've had this struggle where you give the example of wanting to be a present parent. And I certainly, when I think about what I want to be, I absolutely want to be that. But I also, at the same time on my list of who I want to be, I like love what I do and I want to be successful. And I actually find so much joy in sort of my career. It's like such a big part of who I am. And so a lot of us will have like on our to-be list, many different things that we want to be. And sometimes it's that idea where you have to look at it and know that like there are consequences with also who you want to be and what you want to be. And sometimes they will push and pull from the other things you want to be. And I think a really good strategy that I recently just came across was I saw something that that actually physically like said or in a measurable way. And this is something that I'm I'm doing. Like I got a, a, someone just sent me a care package for a company that they started on mindful parenting. And in it came this little really cute, I must say, um, I don't remember what it's called, but it's, a, it's essentially a little like um, timer clock. And the tip on there was like, just 15 minutes, if you can, or start with less, I would say. I'm adding the start with less because not everybody, you know, we have to work our way up to that. Put your timer on in the middle of your day or whenever you can and put your phone away. And for a dedicated amount of that time, spend that 15 minutes wholly and presently with your child. And I've started to try to do that now because oftentimes we can just like, especially with working from home, everything blends together right now. Every single thing, me as a parent, me as a housekeeper, me as a chef, me as an optimism doctor, me as a podcast host, like me as running things are looking up, me as a wife, like as a daughter, all of these things are blended together in one day. And I'm sort of just a chicken without a head. And I've talked to many people that feel the same way where we're like literally doing all those things at the same time. And not only is that not efficient, but it's not joyful. Like I'm, I'm losing the joy in every single thing I'm doing because I'm doing too many of them all at once. So that's what I was going to say with that part. I think you and I, it sounds like have a lot of similarities. I have uh, four kids and I work full-time. My relationship is very important to me with my husband. We have a podcast we do together. I mean, it's like the list is is ongoing. And I often say, because people say, well, how do you do it all? Because I, I do believe you can do it all if you're doing things you love to do, right? I think very often people waste a lot of time, a lot of mental energy, feeling guilty and shame and blame and a lot of negative emotions. So my first advice is just cut that right out, right? All of that time you're spending wasting in a negative feeling or thought or of regret, the should haves, the could haves, you can actually find a lot of time in your day to put somewhere else. And the other part is that, you know, I use this analogy. It's like you're driving the car and sometimes your child or your children will sit shotgun. 
Other times you have a deadline, you're writing a book, whatever it is, that's going to sit in the front seat and something else is moving to the trunk. So you're, you can give time and energy to everything, but not equally, right? And you need to see what is requiring the most of your time and that you desire to give energy there. And I think it's so important to say not everything at the same time. Correct. Um, and like to know that whoever's writing or whatever's writing shotgun, it's a choice that you're making. And so knowing, I think that piece again, where I, where has really been something I've had to learn is that like, it's not something that's happening to me or getting taken away from me. It's a choice right. I'm intentionally making. And the choice I'm making should be rooted, of course, in purpose, joy, but also know that that choice has consequences. And it just means that, you know, a, the, that one thing is going to be riding shotgun and some of the other things are right behind you. And so I think that there's that piece of it that we don't really want to face, but we do have to face. Is that like whatever choice you make, things happen from that choice. And I think like really trying to stay in the empowered piece of it's a choice. Well, this is the thing. I think that the word consequence might be a little, because consequence sounds almost like, you know, you're making a sacrifice and, and there's mm-hmm. going to be like a, a negative kind of effect of this. I, I like what you're saying in that everything is a choice and every everything that comes to be is an effect of something you have decided. So that's why it's so important to be aligned with what you desire and to remove all that guilt and shame, you know, because often women, especially, you know, if they have a lot of kids or, you know, I brought these children in the world and now I'm ignoring them because I'm pursuing this other part that's really important to me. They don't need to contradict, by the way. You doing what you love and putting time and energy in there is being a great role model for your children because you're going to want them to be grown up and to approach their life in the same way. I think the expectation that we have on ourselves needs to be healthy and kind and clear. What about for like parents, and this comes up a lot and I want to really validate it. Some people don't actually love what they do. And it's not necessarily what brings them the most joy, but they need to put food on the table. They need to work, um, whatever it is that they can, can do. Not everybody has a choice actually in exactly what it is that they want to do. Sometimes something, an opportunity comes up and it's something they have to take because it's satisfying something else like making money or putting food on the table or the hours are right or whatever that is, or there's benefits and healthcare benefits, whatever it is, but they much they would prefer to be with their kids. And that is what they really want to do. And so I, I do want to like, A, talk about that, but also put it out there that yes, there are choices. and But like, maybe we can't 100% say that every single thing is an absolute choice. Sometimes I, I've definitely talked to many people who are, they their choice would be to prefer to be with their children, but they feel that they have to do something else in order to make the life work with having their kids or being able to provide for them, especially if they're a single parent. Yeah, I'm so happy you brought this up. I think that by choice, what I'm saying is that the only choice we really have is how we see things and how we react to them, right? So we might not be able to change our circumstance, but we can certainly change the way we feel about it. So if a person is resenting their life, basically their days, because they're spending time doing things they really don't like, but they have to do it. So I would say first, change the way you view that, right? Be grateful and appreciative that you're able to make a living. But that doesn't mean that you have to give up on your life because at the end of the day, what's going to matter when we come to the end? It's going to be, you know, did I do what I love in terms of my time, my energy? Did I spend people time with people that I value the most? So I, I do firmly 
fully believe that there's always time to then find. So if you're working nine to five, right? And people, let's say they hated their job and they're not shifting their consciousness and they're still resenting it and feeling maybe a little bit about a victim having to be in that situation. So when you come home at night, are you able to switch and be joyous and really appreciate your family and spend time with them? Or are you just really looking good forward to a glass of wine or maybe three, right? So I think that even, you know, if you have to work and be in a situation that you really don't love, there's time in the day or on the weekend or at some point where you can start putting energy, even if it's 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day to start doing the things that light you up. Because from that space, you're going to be able to shift the energy of your whole life and even and your perspective. Yeah. So I'm so glad you brought that up 100%. I, I always say that our perspective is our most valuable tool and energy is our most valuable currency. And so what we choose in the times we can choose our, to put forth our energy into is really important, what we consume. And that means who we're around, not just what we're eating and consuming, but also that, but who we are around, what type of articles we choose to read, you know, our environment, like what is literally around your room right now. And then also there's something else that I've been adding to the, this idea of these micro moments that I talk about because I find myself, even though this is what I do and I'm an optimism doctor and I literally go through the science behind this and I help people with it, but I find myself saying, I don't have the time. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not putting the effort into creating more of these experiences where I'm actually experiencing joy, which is literally what I prescribe to people. And so I've started to really um, hone in on this idea of a micro moment. And there's no time that is small enough um, or too small. Uh, If it's a minute, if it's three minutes that you can steal in your day to do something that brings you joy and then do that five times, if you can't get that, you know, 15 minute chunk or whatever it is, like I found that that is kind of what gets me through the day. Um, because like I said in the beginning, like I definitely, everything that is sort of on my plate right now, I can look at and say, these things are bringing me joy. But the way in which I'm executing all of them right now, it's sort of taking the joy away from it all. And it's because I, you know, the more I add these micro moments of just completely me, joy, like doing something just for the, just for the fact that it brings you joy. I think we have to almost, people feel they have to really get permission for that you know, it's sort of like, well, that will be a waste of time. What is it really doing? And until you really train your brain to understand that that actually is not just something that feels good, but it's actually positive survival. Well, I love this. I love this point because it's true. We've become such a culture that everything has to be purpose driven. If it's not, if it doesn't, if there's not a reason for it and it's not a purpose for it, then it's a waste of time. But then if you look back at your own childhood or children, right? It, the, the point of the day is to discover new things, is to be curious, is to laugh, is to be silly, to fall and get up again, right? And when we lose that aspect of ourselves, we really are much more upset. And I think that even if people don't have such a healthy relationship with themselves and they don't give themselves the permission to actually take the time three minutes in the day to have a dance party with yourself or whatever it is, right? Because I, I do that plenty of times throughout the day. Try to see where your consciousness is at in moments. Like you said, when you're with people that you love, let's say that, you know, I had this experience. I was walking with my daughter a few blocks and she's skipping and she's happy and she's talking and it was a beautiful day and the sun's shining. There's birds I can hear. But in my mind, I was worried about something. So physically, you know, she didn't, I'm smiling at her. I'm holding her hand, 
but where was I, right? Where was my mind? But I was able to catch it in that moment and say, okay, wait a second. She's not going to be this age forever. She's fully with you. She wants your attention, be fully present. So I was able to steal those three minutes, those five minutes and, and bring it back to joy and bring it back to just being, right? So I think that that's another thing. So there, there's ways that we need to go and seek it. But then there's other times where you need to stop and say, okay, in this moment that is joyful, actually, mm-hmm. it, it is where I want to be. I'm with who I want to be, but where am I? Mm-hmm. So true. And that idea of, like you said, I love that. Like some moments we're going to have to actually intentionally seek out and create. And other times they're literally right in front of you. Like they could hit you in the head and you have to actually just open your eyes and your mind and your heart to it. And and with all the interviews I've been doing, what I've realized is that there is such a benefit for our brains and for increasing optimism and resiliency and joy in this idea of actually allowing yourself and and even challenging yourself to stay in a joyful moment. So Mm -hmm. like how we sort of like, we skip through joyful moments because we're like, huh, if it's not broken, there's nothing to fix and we're fixers. But like, actually there's this, you know, there's a a really big tool is, is learning kind of like a muscle, how to sharpen your skill of like, when you feel joy, when that like moment of joy comes, try really hard to sort of ignite all of your senses to be really mindful and to stay in that moment for like moments longer. Like, what does this feel like? I'm recognizing joy. What's around me? What does it smell like? You know, what does it sound like? What does it feel like? All these things to make yourself stay in that moment of experiencing joy longer. And it has like such an impact and an an effect. Completely. It's funny. One of my daughters, my older daughter, for her Mother's Day card, she wrote something that I, I actually hadn't thought of. She said, I love how you just become silly out of nowhere for no reason. And I was like, wow, I'm so happy that they see that, right? I never even thought, because that's just who I am. And I'll be like, full on, I'll go all the way with it and just get, but I, I you know, because sometimes I can also be on the other side of that very serious. So I was like, wow, I'm, I'm so happy that the kids see that and they enjoy it. And that then I made the decision in that moment to do it more, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on self-sabotage. Yeah, I love this topic too, um, because I think that there's a lot of things that we do we're not aware we're doing them. And people think, oh, I'm not self-sabotaging. You know, I'm, I'm successful here. I'm getting that done. And But it's it has this kind of insidious way of creeping in without us fully realizing it. So there's four ways I believe we self-sabotage. The first is pessimism. Uh, the second is helplessness. The third is judgment, being judgmental. Negative speech would fall under that category. And the last is perfectionism, uh, which I certainly uh, suffered for many, many years with that one. Um, so pessimism, when we have things in life happen, there's two ways of looking at it, obviously. And I'm sure you've done a lot of your own research in this, but one can look at it, a situation that's happened that was challenging, or um, maybe they would even say it's bad and, and think that somehow it's their fault mm-hmm. and that it will last forever. And that because this is what's happened, it's always going to be this way. That's one way to go through life. And I think that a lot of people in the last year, especially with the pandemic, you know, where, where, where were we when things kind of came up that we didn't expect that were extremely difficult? Where did we go? And optimist is quite honestly, the very opposite. They never think it's their fault. They think that it's going to last a short time and that there's something great just around the corner. So when we stay in the state of mind, we really are not going to be able to even see the opportunities right in front of us. 
And if we did, we're going to think, oh, it's not really going to work out. Why bother? So I think that it's a great exercise for people to just say, okay, with all the things that have happened or happened in my life, especially the challenging ones, what what thoughts do I have around those? And then how do I live my life according to the belief that I have? Okay. So you talk a lot about something else I'm really interested in, which is this idea of change. And so I actually really believe that change is one of the most difficult experiences of human existence, yet we all we all have to do it almost every single day. And for me, I really believe that you have to want something so badly and know exactly why in order to actually make a change. You have to want something that is that you don't currently have or um, you have to know why having that very thing, whatever it is, whether it's a behavioral change or something else in your life, you have to know why it would make your life so much better and really know that why in order to make you know actual change happen. What are your thoughts on change? What do you say to people that are working through changes and Oftentimes, obviously, we hear the phrase of change is hard, change is difficult, but change is inevitable. So what are your thoughts on that? So I don't know if you know, but I call myself a change junkie. I did not come into the world this way. I was very much a person that liked routine, organization, schedules, which by the way, I still, you know, I love my daily planner, but everything's in pencil with an eraser now. I learned to love equally being flexible. Okay. So for me to go through that transformation was difficult. And what triggered that for me and started this journey in that way to be really committed and to seek change daily was when my second child was born with Down syndrome. And I found out a few hours after his birth. So it was, the diagnosis wasn't what, what got me. It was this idea that my biggest fear had come true, which is the fear of the unknown. And I think that often people approach life trying to collect and gather a lot of things. And we don't really realize it, right? We go to school so we can get a great job, so we can have money, so we can have security and then have a family. And then you collect all these things and you don't want anything to change because you worked so hard to get there. Mm -hmm. Also, usually our first experience with change is not a positive experience, right? A child finds the parents in the middle of a divorce. Now the change is he has to go back and forth between homes, or there was a sudden death in the family and this change and this new reality, it's thrust upon us in a way that's quite jarring. And that was what I had with my son. It was like, oh my God, this is not the life I thought I was gonna have. I don't know if I can parent a child with special needs. Will I love him the same? Like all of these fears and worries came to me. And in that moment, I thought, okay, first of all, this is not the person you want to be. And I was already on a spiritual path. So that was clear to me. What was in front of me was an opportunity to really be open to anything that could happen and choosing my feelings, my consciousness, my experience of it. So then I found, and my mantra became and changed, there's great power. Mm. And that changed everything because when you're saying that, you know, for you, because you're driven, I can tell, and you, and you have your eye on a goal and you're like, okay, I can change anything because I really believe in the purpose of where I'm going and what I'm doing. Amazing. A thousand percent. I do the same thing. However, There's many people who don't believe they can actually change anything about their lives. They also don't believe they're worthy of that. They're not worthy of a good life, right? We, We have so many false belief systems and so many things we've accumulated through our lives. So for that person, I say, there will be things in life that happen to us. Your choice is, is it happening to you or is it happening through you? 
There will be times that are difficult. There will be times that are amazing. There will be times that are challenging and confusing. If every time you are met with something that is really difficult and or an obstacle you do not know how to overcome, stop and say, okay, how can I choose to see this experience different and see it as an opportunity and a gift? There's something beautiful, uniquely designed for my soul to be able to see so that I can actually have a better life and a better existence. But to do that, you have to actually believe that you're not meant to suffer in this lifetime. And that that's certainly a belief of mine. I do not believe in suffering. So that's always been my kind of saving grace of, well, I don't believe in suffering. So then why is this happening? That's so interesting because that is literally how I define optimism. Um, and a person that is optimistic, is, is it's more so rooted in this idea of resiliency and curiosity. So it's like, how will I grow from this situation? Just asking that or being open to it while going through a struggle is so important. Right. So much of what you're saying is, is in this idea of resiliency and curiosity. And that's I think oftentimes a lot of people are surprised that that's actually more so how I describe optimism rather than sort of this idea of positivity. It's really about this idea of seeing the setbacks and the less than ideal situations and the roadblocks and the things that that come up in all of our lives because nobody's life is free from struggle. But it's about seeing those times as temporary and something that we we do have the ability to overcome even if we don't know how or why or when, sorry. It's being an active participant in what you want to occur in your life rather than just being at the whims of the universe, right? I mean, I think that's the difference between a pessimist and an optimist. It's really to say, okay, I, this is my life and it's my responsibility to actually direct it and navigate it in the way that I want. It doesn't mean you can change things that have happened. Again, you can change your experience of it. And that is so empowering to me. You know, there's, post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic growth. For me, I always chose the growth part. You can have the same thing happen to two different people. One can become completely depleted, feel even worse about themselves, and their whole life becomes defined by this bad thing that happened to me after this other bad thing that happened to me and that other bad thing. Or you can say, okay, well, this this has happened. And you know what that thing that happened to me 10 years ago? This is how I grew from it. And that thing that happened five years ago, I call them life quakes. You know what? This is how I grew from that. And that really is the point of our existence. And I think that unless people stop fighting the idea of change, right, then those are the two realities. You're going to live in one or the other. That's so true. You also talk a lot about relationships and particularly about friendship. And I would love for you to talk about, in your experience, what makes a great friendship. I like this question a lot too, because I think that my approach and my expectation from friendships. And even this is kind of related to parenting as well is, is very different than most, you know, as I think, you know, all children kind of look for their best friend in life. And, you know, it happens quite organically when we're younger, you find people that you have fun with and you play together and you're silly together and you discover new things together. And then in high school, you, you also try different things together. And it's like this other experience and you find these kind of like this great sense of like belonging, companionship, but then it gets tricky, right? I think Mm -hmm. there's a certain point and I see this a lot among women, you know, there becomes like jealousy and comparison and a lack of sisterhood. So I have, I've been on all all sides of all of that. Um, I did have a best friend for 20 years who 
quite honestly, one day just told me she doesn't want to be my friend anymore. And for no reason that she could actually give me. And I was broken. I felt like she had died. And I, I you know, it's like a husband coming home or a wife coming home one day saying, like, I just don't love you anymore. And the things that she was telling me, I thought, well, you know, this is what you say about somebody like if you deciding to be their friend or maybe in the first year of friendship. And in the end, I learned really valuable lessons because she wouldn't speak to me. There was no closure. And I remember telling her, you're breaking us. You're breaking this bond. And it can never quite go back again because the trust is going to be gone. And six months later, she did come back and she wanted, she begged for forgiveness. And at that point, so much had happened for me. So what I thought is that, and what I learned, because I kept asking every single day, you know, why did this happen? What am I supposed to learn from it? Because I was in a lot of pain. On top of it, I would do kind things for her. Like I'm, I'm an avid baker and I would bake things for her every week just to, because I didn't want to become a person that was bitter or didn't believe in friendship or, you know, pushed people away. So I forced myself to keep giving to a person that had actually hurt wow. me deeply. Because wow. I do believe that once a friend, a friend for life, meaning if you've loved somebody, right? And you've experienced profound things, she was like a sister to me, then that doesn't go away. Even if she's in a different space or a headspace, I know and I respect the fact that there was something beautiful that was shared there. So that was the first thing. The second thing I realized and the answer that I finally got after asking the question every day was I realized at that time, you know, I, we spoke many times a day and we talked about all kinds of things. So there was gossip in there. There was probably too much dependency there. And when she was removed, you know how much time and energy I started to give towards my work, towards creating classes and meeting with students and writing books, all that, that I was sharing with her as my secret keeper and my best friend, I now put into places that I was really meant to put in for my soul, for why I came to the world. Right. So I think that with friendships, we have to be careful because it can become something that isn't healthy and you almost don't realize it. So now my approach and my understanding is when you find somebody worthy of love and friendship, you offer it. I have zero expectation other than people to be consistent. I think that's a pretty good one and, uh, and loyal, you know, in terms of just that, that consistency, not being one way with you and somewhere else, but if they forget my birthday, that's okay. Like my idea of like the expectation of what you're, you know, I know what I, what kind of friend I want to be and what it means to be a good friend. And I also, um, but my expectation is, is very different. You know, Mm. are you still friends with her? Uh, when we see each other, if we run, I mean, she's in California, if we bump into each other, we'll, you know, like I remember last year we ran into each other on a corner of a street and we stood there for an hour talking. I forgave her and I don't have, I actually thank her, you know, and, uh, and I still love her. If she were to call me and said, you know, I, I need you, I'd be on a plane, but I don't, but I don't desire what we had. And I also just don't think that that's what it's meant to be anymore. So mm-hmm. I think that with friendships and relationships, and even parenting, people need to understand that those are relationships that will change and are meant to change as you change because you will always they evolve. Get, yes. And I, it always gets me when couples are like, you know, after they're fighting after five years of marriage, you know, that just is not who I married. You've changed. Well, yes, yes, they have. And they're going to continue to do so. It just surprises me. They're like, what do you think? You know, you think they're going to stay exactly the same? I think that's, uh, and it's something that I've talked about on some of our couple sort of related podcast episodes, but this idea that almost like going into every single relationship, exactly like you said, whether it's romantic or not, whether it's parent, child, whatever it is, which is the parent and child one is definitely something that 
is bittersweet and so difficult. And I'm sure it's difficult in all relationships with this idea that you go into every relationship knowing, expecting with the intention of it will and the other person and you will all change. And so it's almost like prepping yourself to know that that is actually what is normal. And so it's really, if you can be on that other side where um, you're encouraging change and you're encouraging growth, I think that that is really like that sweet spot. But I know as a parent, it is so hard for me personally. I definitely like go, I, I sort of like lean in on like the thin line between every day that I wake up. I'm so excited to see who my who my children are and sort of how they're growing and what's something new that they're sort of acquiring or a new part of their personality. But I'm like equally mournful and sad for like the day before. How old are you? You know, I'm like, I have a seven month old and an almost four year old. Oh, so sweet. Sweet ages. Yeah. My oldest is 22 and my youngest is eight. And there's two in the middle there. And, uh, you know, I think that because I actually have dreams sometimes where my 22 year old is four or five and he'll come visit me. And it's really, really wild because I, I miss him. Right. I miss that version of him. But what I do, and I really would advise this, is that every step, so what you're saying is that you appreciate them and, and you're trying to appreciate every growth and every step. And, and while still recognizing that you're already missing the stage yes. that you were at the day before, I think that it's important as they get older, because I think parents do this sometimes where they really, because it's so sweet and being a parent, there's nothing like it. They want to hold on to that, that need for them to be dependent on them or to be yes. able to nurture them. And we don't even realize we're doing it. So what I did with my kids and I continue to do is, okay, how do I want to approach this so they will become the adult that I want to spend yes. time with, right? And, yes. and give them that feedback and that space where you don't, you know, you don't coddle them too much. This year, actually, um, one of the silver linings for me of this year, even though there was obviously so much of it that was absolutely brutal and hard. But one of the silver linings is my my four-year-old or almost four-year-old was supposed to start preschool last year. And I was a wreck about it. I didn't really allow him to see it. I reserved that specially for my husband. But I was just like, I know this is what's right for him. And I'm we're ready. We did the whole process. But inside, I was just crumbling of the idea of letting him go. And I know that obviously is something that I share with many, many, many parents. But this year in particular, I've seen how much he actually, because we kept him home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had this bonus year kind of with him. And we did like, you know, some schooling here and stuff like that. But I'm, I work full time and we have a little one. And so does my husband. And so I've seen this year how much he deserves to be challenged and in an environment that is fully for him. And so much of what we can provide him with this year, like so many other parents during this pandemic, is like a fraction of that where so much is... Uh, divided attention and I can't offer him what he needs. And now because of that, almost I look around, you know, you know, even like random parts of my day when I'm with him and I have to do a bunch of other stuff. And I say, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for him. I'm so excited for him to start preschool. Like I I actually can see just like how happy that's going to make him and how much he's going to grow. And I actually, that's something I can't give him. And I'm so excited to sort of give him that in the way of allowing someone else and, and another set of people and also his own way of 
being able to make friends and hang out with peers and and other kids and just like explore and all of that. Like I'm now excited for him to go, which I think I kind of, I don't know if it's that like I needed this to see that or, you know, I'm sure I would have gotten there, but I really got there in a quicker, more like a very organic way after this year. And so- Well, it's interesting because speaking of change, you were able to see that he's now at a stage where he's ready to start creating for himself, right? He's he's transitioning into a space where he needs to be a little bit more independent. Yes. So you can, right? And this lesson that you just got and this experience this past year, that you need to now look at, every, it's going to keep happening at every stage. And that yes. is how you really make sure that those relationships evolve and grow in healthy ways for both. Yes. And I like, it's like taking that, lesson, even though I learned it during this year, which um, hopefully we don't have a year like this again, obviously we're going to, we're going to have other types of challenges, but yeah, it's really about like taking that lesson and gift and like applying it for the future. But I think like the switch for me was like, I always knew that like letting him go off on his own and explore and be independent was the right thing and rationally. And I knew I was going to do it, but I was kind of gritting through it. And now the switch is like, I'm actually I am so elated and excited. Like it makes me happy for him. And I didn't really have that before. It felt like it was very much focused on, I know it's the right thing and it's going to be great for him, but like, ugh, you know, and now I'm actually just like, I'm, I'm, I can't wait like for right. him. And so it's really nice to, to sort of be there. And it's so true. Only in this conversation do I really, I'm realizing that that feeling and experience for him and his growth is something that I do hope to, take on with me and, and further and, and really have that gift and lesson like continue. Um, I want to talk about one more topic. I know we're um, getting to time, but it's a very important topic and it's the topic of fear. And I want to talk to you about your thoughts on fear. I think that all of us experience fear. Some of us have built a resiliency and a muscle almost to deal with fear, maybe through things that we've gone through and persevered through. Some of us are living fearfully in a way every single day and chronically. And some of us are just really uncomfortable with the idea of fear, whatever it is. How? Do, what's your take on fear? And also, does it have any tie-in to your own spiritual practice? And And maybe talk a little bit about Kabbalah and how that sort of ties in. And this idea that I feel like people that are very spiritually connected and have something um, that they truly believe in are less fearful. And is that true? Obviously, I love talking about fear because I wrote a book about it. And, you know, it's interesting because I was giving at the time before I wrote the book or even had the idea to write a book, I was going to give a talk on fear. And I was in London and I was lost and, you know, Uber was new there. Really, if you're ever in London, take the taxi cab yes, service because they're amazing. They, they study it for years, yes. by the way. There's so they're many experts. completely. Yeah. Well, exactly. So I, I, had, I didn't realize that at the time. And I'm feeling fearful that I'm going to be really late for this lecture. And so on the radio, there was a woman speaking about fear. And so all of a sudden it took me out of my mind and, and the, the space of the worry. And she was saying that, you know, she really wants to help people learn to live with their fear and deal with their fear. And I thought, you know, no, you've got this all wrong. You actually want to eradicate fear because when you live a life where fear is in the driver's seat, you actually put everything else in the back seat. It really paralyzes us. 
from living the life that we're meant to. It stops our dreams. And the way, because fear can really feel all-consuming, I've identified three different types. So there's healthy fear, there's real fear, and there's a logical fear. So healthy fear is as it sounds. It's set up for our survival and our protection. It's there to keep us safe, right? If you're hiking in Malibu or in the mountains and you go too close to the edge of the cliff and something in you, right? Your heart starts beating, your stomach drops, you step back. Or if you go too close to an open flame, you know, your, your instinct is to pull back. Even intuition, you get a, a dark feeling about somebody or you're about to enter an elevator and somebody's already in there, you know, something kicks in to protect you. So I'm okay with that kind of fear. It's there for our survival and our protection. Real fear also, I think, can be useful. So real fear is fear of death, of uh, disease, of losing our loved ones. So even this fear can be transformed and converted to something positive. So for instance, if somebody's afraid of losing their parents, but they don't take the time to really tell them they love them or to be kind to them, or they're constantly ruminating about the idea that one day they won't be here. And it steals those times of really connecting and sharing fun times together, saying, I love you. That's a waste also. So with those real fears, you can even use it as a motivator for change, right? If somebody's afraid of disease, of course, diet, exercise, discipline, lifestyle can help with that. But then this one, illogical fear is where most people spend most of their time, right? It's fear of public speaking, of elevators, of heights, of rejection, of spiders. I mean, the list is long. And by the way, as we go through life, we just collect more and more of these fears unless we challenge them. So I believe that, you know, when you ask yourself the question or you say fear is not an option, right away, your brain is now sent a message to go find a new option, right? So it just works like that. For me, anytime I have found a new fear in life, right away, I tackle it. And because if not, I know that I'm going to carry that along. So do you kind of practice like exposure therapy? Like if you're someone that is fearful of insects or spiders, I'm talking about myself. I I don't know. Maybe my husband would say I do, but I don't think I have arachnophobia to the effect where, you know, I've, I've seen more intense situations and situations that are very pervasive. But I do pretty much like I... I am not a fan. I, I definitely find them not pleasant. And if they if there is an insect that I find to be scary looking, I um, retreat. And the idea of even, uh, and I have some insects in mind that like I definitely, I have, I think I very much had an illogical fear about younger even where I would like, I would leave my, my home. Because I'm like, this is in my home. I'm leaving. I'm better about that part now. I still don't run towards it. I don't vacate the premises anymore like I used to. But is your when you talk about meeting it head on, is it like exposure therapy? It's like spend some time closely, hold the insect. Well, okay. The thing is this, your fear of insects, for instance, it's not affecting your day-to-day life. It's not stopping you from your work or your dreams or so what I would do. If I lived somewhere else, it might be. But yeah, since I think I can pretty much control for it in my situation now, exactly. But um, But I think it comes down to, yes, exposure therapy for sure. Like if, you know, you're afraid of driving on the freeway, Mm -hmm. you know, drive five minutes, do it in the morning when your willpower is stronger. There's a bunch of different things, but I think the first and foremost and most important one is your consciousness. So if you like, even as we're sitting here, it's going to freak you out. Let's say a roach is like on the floor next to you. (laughs) So I wouldn't enjoy that either. I don't love, I don't love it. But what I would do is I probably move away. I would handle it, take care of it. 
But the, the idea is that I know that this isn't really, it doesn't want to bother me. It has nothing to do with me. And I wouldn't give it all of my energy. I used to have an irrational fear of elevators from childhood. I mean, I almost like I asked my mom when I was older, I'm like, did you lock me up in a small space yeah. somewhere? Because like, what, what is this about? I mean, literally age four or five, if the elevator door didn't open fast enough, I'd start hyperventilating. And I carried that fear well into until I wrote the book, pretty much. Um, we were moving to New York City. We moved eight years ago. And I couldn't take the fear with me because you can't in California. Sure. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, though, you know, I'm a marathon runner. I've run many miles. I've run out of water and I won't get in an elevator. I, I've climbed 20 flights of stairs after running 15 wow. miles. Right. So I'm telling you, like I was well, I was full on immersed yes. in this fear. But by the time I moved here, I had really challenged that part of myself. I, you know, got much more heavily into the work that I'm doing. And I decided, and I asked myself this question, is your fear of elevators greater than your desire to move to New York City and what you think you can do then? Mm -hmm. So I just decided that I wasn't going to take it along with me. I, I wanted to move here. I believed in it. And I knew that I couldn't deal with that every day. So I just let the fear go. But again, I worked through these things of eliminating fear. How did you work? Can you can you share with us a little bit with that specific fear, um, how you did work through it, aside from just saying, I'm not going to take it with me? Are there things that so, you practice? Are there things that you did? For the elevator example, yes. So if it was a really rundown old building, I that's not where I would start, right? If it was a newer building, the elevator was operating, the building was air-conditioned, it wasn't a Friday on a long weekend, you know, I had my phone, I had water. I started to prepare. I set myself up in a way that I felt more comfortable going into the elevator. And then when I was in there, I'd imagine, okay, so if it got stuck, you know, what are my options here? This is what I would do. And also I know my mind is really strong. So I could start thinking about ideas. I could write something down. I could create something. I could meditate. I could play music on my phone. I started to think about all the other things except for the horrible scenario that I had thought of my whole life, which was, it'll be a long weekend. They won't find me for three days. I'll pass out. I'll be unconscious. I won't be able to breathe, right? That was the narrative that I had. So once I understood that I actually can choose what I want to think, again, I did a lot of work with building my certainty and expanding that just spiritually speaking, which you asked the question, is your fear tied to your spirituality? Yes, it is. But I was able to replace all of that with what I knew to be true, which was that mm -hmm. this isn't going to happen. If it were, I would be okay. Right. Yes. So that so idea big picture, of also, if the roach was next to you, you'd be okay, right? I'd be okay. Of course. Yes. And collecting that evidence is so important. Yes. And then like, yes. Yeah, so you use techniques like first and foremost, imagining the worst case scenario and preparing for it. And then secondly, like you used this, you know, idea of pairing being in that situation with actually concentrating and focusing on healthy distractions, whether it was meditating or creating or sort of choosing what to put your mind on and what kinds of thoughts to think. And then also just being really certain and collecting the evidence in if this were to happen, I would be okay. And to stop catastrophizing. I think a lot right. of people do that uh, very often. And, you know, I, I really do enjoy the gift of time. I never have enough of it. So again, being in an elevator, I could imagine myself somewhere else. And I could say, okay, I have however many hours or whatever by myself to really kind of think and to be clear and to reevaluate and set goals up. I mean, you, you can really put yourself anywhere you decide. Okay. So to end up and to close off, um, I know it's a big topic, uh, but I want to ask you, what is your relationship to your spirituality? Oh, it's everything. Um, 
you know, I came into the world really feeling connected to something greater, but I didn't have examples of that in front of me. And then I went to Beverly Hills High School. I kind of lost myself completely. It didn't feel so connected anymore. And then at 17, I really, I stumbled across this wisdom and it answered all of the questions that I had through life. Like, why are we here? What are we meant to do? What is our purpose? Big picture, even though I didn't know my specific one. And it really navigated, dictated how I lived my life going forward. And that it's really all about transformation for the purpose of becoming and connecting to the truest aspect of your soul. And that is a forever process. And, um, and I'm so grateful for that. I love that. Um, okay. So the last thing that we do on the Looking Up podcast, if we were together, you would pick a card yourself, but we pick a card from My Things Are Looking Up, Optimism Deck of Cards. And um, I'm going to just pick a random card. This is your card. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is kind of crazy. <laughs> okay. Change is a challenge for uh, all of us. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. That is so wild. I like, I don't know what it is. Like, I feel like it's, I, I don't know. I don't even know what it is. I can't explain it. Okay. Name a change you withstood and came out for the better. It can be any type of change at all. A job change, a move, a relationship that wasn't serving you well. Wow. Good job. You have successfully changed and therefore been through one of the most difficult experiences of the human existence. Now you can do anything. So this is sort of just your homework for the day and everybody out there listening. I couldn't have picked a better card for this experience. I hope you were already thinking about this while we were having a conversation, but really just pick a time in which, you know, chain you you withstood a change. And I'm sure there's plenty you can pick from because like we said, we are going through changes every single day. And um, figure out if you can find out and, and sort of relate back and, and into the future and, and present and into your future, how that change actually served you and how you grew from it and what, what good came of it, even if it seemed really hard at the time. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, what a great conversation. I Thank really you. appreciated it. I had fun. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism. Optimism.